0: No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply.
1: Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is three, two, one. 2, 1. The Buck Sexton Show.
3: Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you very much for being here. Great to have you. As always, much to discuss this week. And in fact, I think we should kick it off, kick off the week, not just the day, with a Buck Brief. Go.
1: You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief.
3: The major military operation to retake the Iraqi city of Mosul from the Islamic State is underway. We have been waiting for this for many months. It was rumored to be uh, in, in the pipeline and perhaps even weeks away as long ago as last April, I believe. They've been, been, been preparing for this for quite some time. Uh, Mosul Uh, a city in an area of Iraq that I know particularly well, uh, is the last major stronghold of the Islamic State in Iraq. Uh, This will be both a strategic propaganda blow if they lose the city to ISIS, as well as uh, a major battlefield victory for the Iraqi government forces. Uh, This was when, if you recall back in June of 2014, it seemed as though the Islamic State was unstoppable, at least by the forces arrayed against it on the ground in Iraq and Syria. It swept into Mosul with very little, uh, very little fight from the forces that had been arrayed there to defend the city. Uh, they more or less tucked tail and run. In fact, in some cases, there were reports of Iraqi army that, were, that left folded uniforms behind. I don't know if that was just exaggeration for effect. But they did flee the city. There's very little fighting. And ISIS has been pointing to its control of the city of over a million people as the best evidence. Although, by the way, the estimates of how many people live there are they vary dramatically because nobody really knows they haven't been able to conduct the census clearly in a number of years. It's been a tremendous amount of population shifting. The numbers usually range from about a low of around four or five hundred thousand to as high as a little over a million. Um, We don't know. But this city has been in Islamic State hands for a long time. You'll also recall Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the self-declared caliph, uh, the leader of the caliphate that the Islamic State was building. Uh, He announced it. He announced all of this from a uh, from the pulpit, so to speak, in a mosque in Mosul. Mosul is an important city. It's, it's important also because since Baghdad, uh, which was always a Shia-majority city in terms of population, uh, you have the area, often referred to as the slum of Sadr City alone, has a, a, million, a million plus Shia, uh, Shia Muslims in it. Baghdad is now considered a Shia city and Basra in the south is considered a Shia city. And so when you Look at major Sunni Arab-controlled cities. Well, Fallujah, which has changed hands numerous times between government-slash-coalition and Sunni jihadist forces, stretching back for a decade now, Fallujah has been largely leveled and destroyed. Ramadi, the same thing. It has changed hands. It has been largely leveled and destroyed. And what we find ourselves with is a situation where now the last important uh, city in Iraq that has a large Sunni population may be wrested from its captors in in ISIS and finally it will fall into the dominion once again of the Iraqi government. Uh, Now, this is all going to take quite a bit of time. Um, Mosul has seen more than its fair share of insurgency and battle over the last 13 years or so. And you have four to five thousand, they estimate, fighters, uh, ISIS fighters who are entrenched and have been preparing for this for quite some time. They've known this is coming. Um, I will get into sort of the politics and the timing of this in just a few minutes. But as a look on as to what they can expect on the ground, I mean, you're talking about operating in a dense urban environment with uh, you can imagine plenty of places uh, for. Very effective ambushes uh, snipers will be a major a major problem in placed IEDs Currently, the Iraqi government forces that are trying to make their way closer and deeper into the city are faced with uh, are, are getting hit with uh, rockets are getting hit with mortar rounds uh, they're being they're taking some shrapnel from that, and so they've been preparing this defensive position for quite a while. This is a major test, a test of the Iraqi armed forces that we've been working with. You've got the U.S. officially, the official number, and who knows what the real number is. Well, I mean, I don't know anymore. There was a time when I would have known these things. But the official number is around 5,000 in Iraq. And that's now a lot of that has to do with just personnel security. And so the tooth to tail ratio of actual fighters, uh, of actual uh, people out there on the front lines, I should say, versus those who are doing logistics and training and intel support means that you don't have a very large contingent of U.S. military that is right out there on the front lines with Kurdish Peshmerga, who are part of this effort, as well as iraqi government forces. A Part of that iraqi government forces, by the way, are also Shia militia. Um, and so the tensions that exist within this country are reflected once again. In, and Mosul is a city that is divided, literally— it is bisected by the Tigris River, and it is also divided figuratively uh, by sect, by ethnic grouping. So you have uh, used to have a more substantial Christian population there. It has since been largely eradicated, uh, just as it has elsewhere in the country. Not a lot of attention paid to this, but even in the old days of Al Qaeda in Iraq, there was a systematic effort to uh, target and murder Christians, including. Senior uh, Assyrian and Chaldean Christian clerics, and this wouldn't get much attention in the Western press because we never wanted to seem like we cared more. You know, if a bishop was beheaded in Mosul, it wasn't something that should have gotten more attention than the latest, you know, car bombing in a marketplace in a Shia neighborhood in Baghdad. That was sort of the that was sort of the attitude. Um, of course, that meant that a persecuted minority group that was really facing extinction at the hands of a larger group wasn't getting the uh, media attention and therefore also the policy attention and perhaps the resources that it should have forget about the perhaps there, it should have gotten more resources. There should have been more protection of the Christian community. Uh, the only people that really were protecting the Christians for a long period there in the area of Mosul were the Kurds, and the Kurds do so probably out of a sense of solidarity with another, with another group that's persecuted by uh, Sunni Arab jihadists, as well as the Shia government in Baghdad. And on top of that, and they recognize that the more the Kurds look stable, trustworthy, uh, look like good allies in this fight against ISIS and look like good partners for building stable par- stable areas of this country, which they have been, uh, the more the whole international community, especially the U.S., looks at them and says, OK, why exactly don't we just sort of go all in and help these guys build a state of their own or at least create a, a sort of federal, a federal system where they have more or less total autonomy and we help them create an island of stability in a sea of chaos, which is what the Kurds have managed to do. The rest of Iraq doesn't have to be the way that it is. Uh, the rest of Iraq is the way it is because of various groups and factions, Sunni and Shia Arab, that would prefer to shoot at each other and uh, blow each other up then come to a political power-sharing agreement and put the past behind them and move forward. There are choices that are constantly being made in Iraq that lead them down a path of continued violence and instability. I'm not saying this is a majority choice, but enough of the population, whatever that may be, enough of those with access to firearms and explosives, have decided at various points that they're going to keep fighting that they'd rather settle this in blood than in a boardroom. And that's what's been going on. The Kurds have taken as much as they can the opposite tack and have shown that you, you could have a stable Iraq, uh, something that we've now forgotten, I think, because it's been a mess for so long. But you could have a country that is uh, more or less self-governing and capable of being a real partner and, and a real ally in, in the Middle East, it's just all of the history, and we're talking about places like Nineveh, by the way. Some of you probably think Nineveh, oh, uh, Mosul, which is the capital of Nineveh province. Nineveh is the province in which you find Mosul uh, tucked up in the sort of northwestern corner of Iraq, but Nineveh sounds a lot like Nineveh from the Bible because, well, it is. Uh, this is an area has been Christian longer than many people, I think, remember. Uh, you look at some of the Assyrian Christian communities in the area, and they're Among the oldest Christian communities in the world, Uh, of course, they've largely been exterminated now by various Sunni Arab uh, jihadist groups. So Mosul is symbolically, strategically, it is important in every sense in this battle. And now we get into the why. How is this going to go first, I guess? And maybe then we'll talk about the why now, the timing of all this. You can expect that this will be a difficult fight. You can expect that there will be uh, a lot of resistance from the Islamic State uh, in this city. They probably know deep down, or maybe at least the planners in Raqqa in Syria know, that they can't hold it. But they want to try to both bleed the Iraqi forces, arrayed against them as much as they possibly can, as well as force them to overstep, force them to overreach, to destroy much of the city, uh, we still will have to see what the long-term consequences are of Ramadi and Fallujah uh, becoming largely depopulated cities as a result of the efforts by the Iraqi government to retake them. Mosul is considerably larger than either of those cities uh, and is a place where you have, you know, Fallujah and Ramadi are really Sunni Arab uh, Sunni Arab strongholds there's not the same cross section of of the uh potluck of ethnicities and uh tribal affiliations and such that you find in uh in Mosul so the whole country will be watching this it's a test for Ab- uh, alabadi the prime minister know we'll to see how he does with this um but it also is going to be a situation where you can expect it'll take, uh, I think a number of weeks and you, you have different levels you'll achieve, right? There'll be when the government officially has control of the city and then there'll be when the government establishes security in the city. And those aren't necessarily the same thing. You may no longer have ISIS flags flying off of any rooftops. You won't have ISIS fighters openly moving around in the street, but some of them certainly are going to try to melt back into the civilian population. And there will be, uh, IED attacks, there'll be ambushes, there will be continuing and lingering violence, As uh, even if the operation goes very well. There are U.S. military. It has been reported right on the front lines along uh, Peshmerga, Kurdish Peshmerga, and also Iraqi government uh, military forces. They are there in a sort of oversight role. I'm sure they are also there doing things that no one's ever going to know about or talk about. One of the great things about our special operations forces is that they're willing to do incredible stuff and let other people take credit for it. So their presence there is incredibly useful. There's also been a series or or continuous uh, airstrikes now softening up positions inside of Mosul. They've been targeting what they believe to be senior Iraqi government, uh, senior, I'm sorry, senior ISIS figures. Pardon me, my voice is a little scratchy today, team as uh, Isis figures who now are operating largely under in a tunnel network underground it's it's expected that there will be a lot of that going on that Isis is going to go to ground they realize that I mean a house to house fight is a is a non-starter for them I mean maybe they'll take out some Iraqi forces and they'll be able to booby trap some buildings but if they really want mobility around the city and want to be able to continue to harass and surprise the uh Iraqi government forces isf as we call them iraqi security forces that was sort of the catch-all term at least when i was over there for all of these different units national police military um re shia militia formerly special groups that are now just sort of in along for the fight maybe taking some orders from iran um so i want to also get into a little bit of the politics of this and the dynamics of it it's a very important moment in uh administration foreign policy in a sense it's an important moment certainly for the Iraqi government and also in the rest of the region you have the possibility of the Islamic state getting routed from its most important city by largely uh, indigenous uh, almost entirely indigenous forces whether they be Arab or Kurdish uh, maybe this is going to be considered the sort of model going forward uh, there's a lot a lot happening we've been waiting many many months for this and certainly the people of Mosul who have been living under this ISIS tyranny for uh, since June of 2014 they've been waiting for this, so it's an important day in that sense, and I'm sure for many of you who served and I know I know some of you listening served in Mosul any uh any striker brigade any anyone from striker brigades in the house we should we should talk we should exchange some stories um, so there's a lot of history going on here or rather a lot of history that comes to bear on this and also has real implications for the future of this country. Uh, So, I mean, Iraq, but also for how we interact in the Middle East going forward. All right, we'll get back into this in a second. We're going to spend some real time on this today. Uh, Sponsor this half hour, silencershop.com. Look, I don't know if you've ever been out there with a silencer. It is a lot of fun, right? It just makes the whole experience more enjoyable. Once you've shot with a silencer, you would be like, I wish I'd been doing this all along. It'll be like a revelation for you. Now, there's some paperwork you have to go through, but SonsorShop.com, make sure you get through all of that as quickly as possible. They'll do whatever they can so that you understand the process, you get it done, you go through the ATF, and then bam, all of a sudden you'll be moving forward, you'll be good to go, and you will be going, or not going home, well, yeah, you'll be going home with the Sonsor after you pick one up at your local firearms dealer. Firearms dealer, by the way, sets the price, makes the profit. So it is like you're buying locally even when you go to silencershop.com. If you want to talk about selection, by the way, silencershop.com has the best selection of suppressors of silencers in the market. So this is really the place you want to go, and it's a, it'll be a, a streamlined, painless experience with a lot of fun at the back end when you finally get your silencer. So, team, go to silencershop.com. Again, that is silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. We'll be right back.
1: This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network.
0: No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply.
1: The Fox Substance Show.
3: Team, I do think it's worth discussing for a moment, uh, just so we have an understanding of what what could happen here. Um, What the possibilities are for the operation in Mosul to go badly uh, because they are very real, Uh, meaning that it could get slowed down. There could be more extensive civilian casualties than uh, anybody's currently prepared for. The big uh, factor that should be taken into account is refugee population meaning uh, the Islamic State may try to weaponize, in a sense, the humanitarian disaster. Um, right now, they are trying to hunker down and use the civilian population as human shields. In fact, in recent weeks, uh, they have been locking down the area, making sure that nobody can leave Mosul. And I believe I read a report that if, they, if you try to leave Mosul and they found out that you had any connection to the Iraqi army or police in the past, they would behead you on the spot. They have been executing people for uh, trying to leave. There's also been the appearance of anti-ISIS graffiti on the streets. So I, I do think that the population, and this is essential, most of the civilian population of Mosul is opposed to the Islamic State and will be happy to see them go. Not all, but most. And what will be interesting to see as this plays out is whether they decide, okay, we don't, we'd rather flood the zone with uh, refugees, essentially, send out as many people as possible, because then you have the ability to exfiltrate fighters, right? You can get, they can get out and then try to make their way maybe back into Syria or maybe, maybe to Europe for an attack. So the humanitarian disaster that looms over all this, I mean, if you have, you could have 100,000 refugees or something that try to leave Mosul more or less all at once. Over, or at least over the course of a few weeks, especially if the fighting gets really nasty, so we got to keep an eye on that. This is a long way from over, but at least it is the end of the beginning, as Churchill once said. Uh, we'll talk a bit about the political implications of this, why it's happening now, and then we've got a lot of other stuff, team. So strap in.
1: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton show. So
3: already the implications of the fight in Mosul are becoming an important topic for uh, regional partners and the U.S. uh, to look into because there's no way ISIS will hold it. We won't let them hold it. I mean, I've got to, will tell you this, if it ends up uh, stalemated for too long, I think you can bet that some mysteriously well-equipped, skillful, and incredibly professional uh, Iraqi, you know, people in Iraqi vehicles but not necessarily in Iraqi army uniforms will go door-to-door and you will all of a sudden all the HVTs will be gone and we'll all sit around and we're supposed to clap for the Iraqi military and just be like, oh, okay, so that's what happened there. Some of you are following what I'm saying. Some of you are probably like, what's he talking about, so... A little bit of inside baseball, but uh, that can happen. Sometimes these guys just appear out of nowhere and they're in Iraqi vehicles or whatever, but they're just so good. They're like better than any of the Iraqis at kicking indoors and getting the bad guys. And then they just disappear. And we say, yay, Iraqi military. Okay. Anyway, um, where were we? Oh yeah, if it gets if it gets slowed down, we we won't allow this to go in any direction other than ISIS losing control of the city, and it's going to happen. And you know, it'll probably take I don't know. Nobody really. This is one of the things I can give you a projection. It might take a few weeks. Nobody really knows. Uh, it's a it's a big area. Mosul's a big city. Um, it's a cr- crap city in terms of there's a lot of just trash and you know down buildings. It is not a vacation spot. Not a place where I recommend you book a week this coming Christmas, go hang out in Mosul. Uh, Not at all. But the regional uh, players, particularly the Turks, are watching this with a lot of interest. Uh, The Turks say that they would like to have a, a hand in what's going on here. Of course, they always take the perspective of, well, this is about counterterrorism, right? This is about finding a way to be useful in the counterterrorism fight because they know the U.S. has to always say, oh, wow, you want to help us on counterterrorism? That sounds great. In reality, they want to keep an eye on the Kurds. The Turks view the Kurds as a threat to the integrity of the Turkish state. There are a lot of uh, Kurds down in sort of south, uh, uh, southeastern Turkey uh, along the border with Syria and Iraq. Uh, they call they used to call the Mountain Turks. I don't know if they still do, um, but they don't, you know, they, they don't really recognize the language. And you know, Turkey is an interesting place uh, in that it decided, well, Ataturk really decided in the 20th century to modernize and change much about Turkey. Um, and that meant the suppression of a lot of uh, sort of Islamic traditions and very public displays of Islam. I mean, Turkey went from being really the heart of the uh, theocratic Muslim world with the caliphate, right? It was the seat of the Uh, of the Ottoman Sultan, really was the greatest, greatest in the sense of at least most powerful, most influential Muslim leader for many centuries. And after the First World War, all of a sudden that came to an end, and you had the carve-up of the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottomans no longer are powerful, and the Turkish state comes along, you have Ataturk, and you have all these modernization protocols that he puts into place, um, and they'd get rid of things like, uh, I think the, was it the, I think they, they, yeah, the Fez was considered sort of an old, old school thing. So they wanted to stop wearing the Fez. Was that in Egypt too? I can't remember now. So they uh, did all this, but they suppressed a lot of Islamic, uh, I don't know, I don't know if you'd say their tendencies, but a lot of, a lot of Islam was sort of forced underground and then it resurfaced later on. But also this sort of, sort of there was a nationalization effort um, or a, a, an attempt to build a nationalism, uh, that's a better way to put it, that suppressed any non-Turkish identity, and the Kurds were along with that. We promised the Kurds a state, or at least the League of Nations, which I guess was we could all point to as a, one of Woodrow Wilson's nice but failed ideas. Uh, and as we all know, Wilson's not actually a very nice or good guy, but we allow all that to pass. He gets you know, Princeton names at school, of international affairs and diplomacy or whatever after the Woodrow Wilson School. And the the, the Turks just want a hand in what's going on in Mosul because they don't want the Kurds to entrench themselves too much in the future of Mosul because the more the Kurds control, the more antsy the Turks tend to get, even though the Turks have a lot of direct investment in in Kurdistan, such as it is. There are economic ties there, but the Turks get very worried about that. So they're saying that we need to make sure that, uh, you know, we're keeping an eye on this. The U.S., which has some leverage, uh, our airstrikes have been helpful. We've been assisting Kurds in seizing villages in the outskirts of Mosul for some time now. Villages, in some cases, just being like a, a grouping of houses that, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, are some goats bouncing around. Uh, but still. We have some leverage with our airstrikes, and well we're America, which sometimes I feel like this administration forgets. Sorry, guys, if it sounds like i'm only speaking in one octave it 's because I can only speak in one octave today so i'm not uh <laughs> I'm not trying to do a different kind of show. I just don't have a higher vocal register than what i'm giving you right now so uh the the Turkish equities in Turkish equities in uh, Mosul are essentially block, you know, keeping an eye on the Kurds and, and blocking them out. And everyone's concerned with, well, who polices, right? This is always the clear and hold part of this. Clearing is happening now. What happens with the hold? And all the, all the forces of ISIS have to do is kill enough, uh, kill enough people and create enough chaos that it seems like the Iraqi government is dysfunctional. And then the Iraqi government... Which is considered to be a puppet government of Iran and run by Shia and Shia stooges. And if you're a Sunni, that's terrifying to you. As much as we hear it, we're like, what's the difference? It's like Brooklyn versus Manhattan. You know, they all have same language, same religion. Who cares? No, no, they care a lot. Uh, It makes a big difference to them. And we see all of this. We say, well, who's going to be policing the streets of Mosul afterwards? Who's going to be in charge? And that's a critical question, because if you have largely Shia forces walking around in Mosul and the residents feel like they're getting abused or there are other problems that come from all of this, uh, then you may have more support for the insurgency. Remember, insurgencies are uh, comprised of different layers, different tiers. You have the, the leaders, you have the sort of logistics, uh, logistics personnel, finance people, bomb makers – You have street fighters, uh, guys who get paid a certain amount of money. Some are real ideologues. Some are just getting a paycheck. But then you have civilians who turn a blind eye. You have civilians who will take money to be spotters. You have civilians who aren't willing to share information with the authorities just because they don't really trust them, even though they don't like the insurgents. right? And so there's all these different levels, and this is why it becomes – that's why people find in the sort of security sphere, insurgency and counterinsurgency to be such a fascinating field of study because there's so many different layers that collide and so many different uh, parts of this, there's there's an intricacy to it. You know, some people, I, I knew guys in the 80s, some guys are order, order of battle guys, you know, they want to know who's got the best tanks, where they can line them up, whose who's planes, you know, go the fastest and the furthest and drop the most ordnance and uh, and other guys want to want to get into the human terrain and talk about insurgency and hearts and minds of, you know, village by village. And you know, it's just sort of just different specializations. Uh, we find ourselves, well, really, in this campaign, I guess we're sort of doing a bit of both because we're using our air power to assist forces on the ground. And we are also providing as much intelligence support as we can to the Iraqis. Got to assume at this point that ISIS is smart enough Not to be saying too much on the phones in Mosul, but, you know, you never know. There's a lot of don't ever uh, overestimate the intelligence of a lot of these insurgents who have lifespans that will not that that are not going to impress anybody that I will say um, and and are capable of of tremendous, uh, tremendous stupidity. So we will see how adept they are at trying to sort of counter the forces that have been built up against them. The noose is tightening around the neck of ISIS in Mosul. That is definitely true, and this is to be uh, this is to be celebrated uh, as it once it occurs. It hasn't happened yet, and this could get very bloody and nasty. And as I said, the humanitarian catastrophe. That's how you exfil your fighters too. You got a city of a million people. Maybe you got, you know, let's say of the four thousand fighters, uh, ISIS fighters. Maybe 3,000 want to stay and 1,000 are under orders to either make their way back to Raqqa or to try to find their way to attack externally as a sort of a retribution for this assault on Mosul. How how do you separate them? I mean, what are you, you going to do? What exactly? You have to rely on the civilian population. You have to rely on the civilian population to have the intel and be willing to share it and to get it to people in a timely enough fashion, uh, get it to Iraqi government and— This is all, you know, this is a big, messy, uh, a big, uh, messy fight that's ahead. So we will watch it with with interest to be sure. Uh, Just a few notes on the timing of it. I I do have to say, and I don't like to be conspiratorial. Well, actually, that's not true. I like to be conspiratorial for fun, but I don't like to offer you conspiracies because uh, they're often, it's just often a, a way of people who are intellectually lazy trying to seem interesting. Um, but there are real conspiracies and they do exist. And sometimes the macro thinking does bring you into uh, places that go con counter the what was that professor name was say uh, subvert the dominant paradigm, right? So if you want to subvert the dominant paradigm paradigm, if you want to counter the uh, proposed orthodoxy of a certain situation, you often find yourself in a conspiracy because conspiracy allows for the suppression of of unpopular analysis, unpopular views on a subject, right? You need there to be collusion to suppress ideas about what's really happening, and that's where the conspiracy comes in. Um does not seem to me to be accidental that you have this major push underway. And I know a body is look, he might as well stand at the front of this thing. He might as well be, you know, riding around on a white horse. You know, putting his hand in his shirt like Napoleon and acting like he's the guy who's getting all this stuff done because, yeah, you need to defeat ISIS. You need to take back one of your major cities. Quite honestly, it's an embarrassment that the Iraqi army fled from Mosul, and it's an embarrassment that the Iraqi government hasn't been able to take it back for two years. But, yeah, you're a body. You want to take as much credit for this as you possibly can. Um, do I think that the U.S. government, which still does have some real sway in Baghdad, maybe one of this pushed along a bit? It is very con- it's convenient timing at a minimum. It's convenient that you have the liberation of a city that has been under siege by ISIS or that has not been under siege by ISIS, has been under ISIS's control for two years, happening a couple weeks before the election. I'm just wondering how many of you think that Hillary's going to bring this up in the debate in a couple of days? I think all of you would be raising your hand right now
0: if we were doing a hands raise thing. Of
3: course, she will she's going to say that the obama methodology and approach to dealing with isis has proven itself to be successful and whether that's true or not and i have to say i mean being able to take back mosul is certainly a positive thing that it's been under the control that it's been under the thumb uh, really under the blade this sort of you know head chopping scimitar of isis for the last 2 years is pretty disconcerting it should be you know, this is a population that has been uh, brutalized and demoralized now in Mosul. But it is to be celebrated that they or at least, you know, it's, it's a step in the right direction, a big step in the right direction when the city finally is no longer in the hands of the Islamic State. And the aftermath of this and the holding of a city after it's been cleared, all of that won't be relevant before Election Day because we won't know. The timing of this is perfect in a sense makes it look like the Obama administration knows what it's trying to do. makes it look like President Obama was right all along with his sort of slow. I'm not saying I think this, but this is what they're going to offer up. This is what Hillary's going to say, that the usage of our allies on the ground and building this up and the slow roll approach to ISIS is the correct one. Is that true? Is that the, I mean, the truth doesn't matter when it comes to elections? We all know that now, right? That's the one thing that I think all of us have learned this year. The truth really doesn't matter enough in the election. It matters to you, matters to me, but for a lot of Americans, the truth is irrelevant. It's perception, and it's good guys and bad guys, and which team are you on? So we'll see. We'll see what the timing of this actually means. I think you can watch. I think you can expect Hillary to do a a, a backflip over this whole Mosul operation by uh, operation by Wednesday. Although Hillary doing a backflip, that would be pretty awesome if that happened. Back in a few.
0: Rex Sexton,
1: the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show.
3: Well, we're not the only ones. According to a poll that's out now from ABC News or ABC News reporting on it, at least forty percent of Americans have experienced tension with friends or family over the 2016 presidential election. Yeah, man, this has sucked. Even among conservatives, among Republicans, you know, it's like we're all everyone gets everyone gets all nasty with each other over this. I just wanted to be over so that we can all figure out what the new what the new reality is that we're dealing with, this is just not fun. You know, it's not like watching a close game where you're rooting for your team and, you know, you're hoping it all goes well. It's, this is like, this is like being in the stands and people start fighting and throwing things at each other. Like, that's not cool. And especially when it's people who are rooting for the home team turn on each other for whatever reason, right? I mean, this is like insane. So it's out there, 40% of Americans mean, this election has, people who talk about elections being divisive, uh, well, that's. I think that number represents more than just the uh, more than the partisan divide. I think that's you, you see a lot of people who are uh, fighting among among family, so to speak. I don't mean family as in related to them. I mean ideological family. It's made me. It's given me the sadness on the inside. We don't want this. We don't want our own people turning on on each other. And you know, we need to just all you know start giving each other a high five. Say we love the Constitution. Be like, what's up, Founding Fathers? Hug it out and move on. Hour two coming up. Stay with me.
1: You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. spreading freedom across the nation this is the buck sexton show
3: all right team welcome to our two in the freedom hunt today we're joined by matt welch he is the editor at large of reason magazine you can read his latest also at reason.com and uh, you can follow him on twitter at matt welch mr welch always a pleasure sir
4: how you doing buck sexton
3: you know just just chilling, um doing my thing, tell me some stuff, Mr. Welch. The election right now what are, what are your thoughts <laughs> let's let's start I thirty thousand foot and work our way down
4: I am Oh, well, actually i'm going to go with the, the drone strike uh, at uh, the five hundred foot level here uh, because I'm just fascinated by uh, various weird things in this election, and the weirdest thing I might have seen so far came this morning, a new poll by Rasmussen reports in the state of Utah. Evan McMullen, your ex boss at the CIA, <laughs> which is not true, by the way, but uh, he did work at the CIA, and so did you. Uh, he's one point off the lead in Utah. Evan McMullen.
3: What is? 20, wh- wh- so, okay, so, so, so okay, so so okay. You got to walk me through it because everyone says this to me now, and I'm getting a lot of stuff. And look, I have a certain sense of solidarity with you know my my Langley brother, so I get it, but. Uh, okay, he wins Utah That's one state Now this gets us into the Oh, but if he wins Utah Maybe nobody gets to 270 Is that sort of the
4: Well, there's The, 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 the Getting give back me the, Give
3: it. me the who cares Of Evan McMullen being Let's say he wins Utah
4: It's just weird Utah has won, has voted for a Republican candidate by an average of 36 percentage points since 1972. Uh, Mitt Romney didn't even win by the biggest margin there. Ronald Reagan won by more than 50 percentage points in the state of Utah. It's just a signal of how bizarro world this election is that we might have some rando from Langley, uh, ex-Goldman Sachs, win uh, a state that has been safely Republican here. I think the uh, the 30,000-foot view is... Uh, it's over, people. Uh, it, it really is over. Unless, uh, unless uh, Hillary Clinton actually uh, is replaced by the robot lurking inside her and rips off the masks to reveal the circuitry, and even then, I think Democrats would still come out and vote for her. Uh, it's uh, there is no path uh, for Donald Trump to win the main events, and the Utah thing would contribute to that because Utah is supposed to be safely Republican. That's not a swing state. It's not a toss-up. It is as far as you can go in this direction. There's another state, Alaska, that's never supposed to be competitive. The poll numbers there have been pretty close uh, recently, too, so that's a sign along with states like Arizona, which are inexplicably uh, swing states this year. So it's kind of a sign that uh, that uh, that it is over when we're talking about those states being competitive in ways that we hadn't before. So uh, big I picture. Think, is, is
3: Wyoming the so, yeah. reddest The reddest of states? I think it is, right? Is, but uh, I mean, Utah is certainly right up there.
4: Utah, I, I think, won by the biggest margin uh, last time and, and is most safely in big margins. And I can filibuster while I'm calling that up right on my computer because, of course, it's at my fingertips, Buck. You know that it's always at my fingertips. Uh, I just
3: want yeah. to give a shout out to Wyoming. I feel like Wyoming doesn't get much love during election season because, yeah, yeah, like, because no f- um, like fifty people live there, so it's the it's the Rhode is- Island of the right. No one pays any lo- no one pays any attention to it.
4: <laughs> well, uh, thankfully, yet there isn't a Washington D.C. of the right, which won uh, went for Obama by eighty four percentage points uh, in two thousand and twelve, which is pretty. Uh, outstanding. By the way, I
3: think I know the other sixteen percent. They all live in Georgetown. They all pop their collars and they all hang out at Smith Point. By the way.
4: Yeah, you're not wrong. Uh no, Utah was the biggest uh red state last time just in terms of, of margin. Uh West Virginia up there and Wyoming tied at forty
3: one uh, uh oh, I think, yeah, I say Wyoming. I said Wyoming, right? Yeah, yeah. That's one of the high ones, right? Yeah.
4: Both both of them. Um uh, yeah. oh, and Hawaii, let's not forget Hawaii as a big blue state at uh, forty three percentage points. Uh but yeah, uh, I, I think I think, I cannot imagine anything that's gonna happen. And and Trump's a uh, very noticeable pivot after the Audio tape, uh, Billy Bush, Gates, uh, uh revelations came through. They decided that we're just going to go for it. This is going to be reverse Bulworth. If uh, everyone remembers, like late '90s Warren Beatty, Beatty uh, awful uh, liberal wish fulfillment picture, in which a uh, bland Gary Hart style Senate, I believe, uh, candidate suddenly, uh, you know, uh, starts uh, uh, having sex with Halle Berry, so that uh, change, wakes wakes his mind up, and then maybe he's he's having a uh, uh, he like gets a uh, uh cancer or something he 's got a year to live, so suddenly he starts instead of doing the usual uh kind of uh, uh stump speech insincere this kind of stuff he starts rapping. He starts wrapping the truth about how he's just pulling the wool over the eyes of minorities to get their votes, and then forgetting about them and doing the bidding of of his investment banker bidders. And this and everyone says, "My God, you can't do this!" And then improbably, he starts doing well in the polls until they have to, you know, assassinate him or whatever. Well, this is I think Trump has gone the reverse Bolworth of like, uh, okay, um, so if I speak, the total blunt, populist, insane truth. Not just the truth, but we're just going to go all the way on the other side and just say whatever we come to our minds, um, that's going to somehow propel us to victory because people will be so exhilarated. Um, So I think since he's doing that, that is an indication uh, that he's not expecting to reach out into any new constituencies here. Uh, I think he's building support for whatever comes next for the Donald Trump brand uh, after November 8th or whatever the damn date is. Uh, and you know, we've seen preliminary re- reporting from today in the Financial Times that uh, his son is making inquiries to uh, media uh, people about perhaps starting up a television. So, network.
3: so wait, Trump Trump TV? You think is really going to be a thing?
4: I. I, I- some variation of it I mean there's uh, I've heard people speculate that it well, it'll be Trump TV, but it won't be TV it's hard for me to imagine that it wouldn't be because he loves TV He obsesses about it uh, constantly the ratings, the performances there I mean and all kinds of profiles of him both this year and twenty years ago, like he can't even hold a conversation without glancing at a TV somewhere so uh, yeah, Trump TV makes all the sense in the world, especially considering that Roger Ailes is uh, advising him, and I grant that Roger Ailes has signed a non-compete the size of Wyoming uh, here, but, uh, but at some point, considering that uh, Bannon from Breitbart is around him, uh, and just what do, you, what do you do with this thing that you have created um, long-term in a way that you can profit from it? It's hard to imagine what there is out there besides media. The most The people who have profited the most out of right-wing populism over the last 20 years are people who work in the media, and I think that is a truth that this campaign has revealed and underlined. And so, why not get in on the action uh, instead if you're not going to actually go all the way and uh, get into governance?
3: When are we? When are we going to get libertarian TV hashtag legalized don't criminalize, bruh?
4: Yeah, you know what we we try to make our inroads whenever we can. Uh, there's a bigger libertarian footprint. In uh, television, certainly than there was four years ago. We had a little show, The Independence, which was pretty great. Oh, I used out there. to
3: hang out uh, on that fantastic show. I enjoyed used it. To very hang much. out on
4: that show, uh, Kennedy is uh, flying the the freak flag. Uh, there's a, a stable of people who go in and out of uh, Red Eye uh, who are doing this. MSNBC has a couple of shows that uh, allow the likes of us to go on and yak. I wouldn't describe the shows themselves as libertarian, but libertarian friendly. And you know, we're always trying to hatch new. Uh, hey, why dream, are the communists, explain
3: evidence. this to everybody listening, Matt. why are the communists kind of okay with you libertarians? Is it because well, you guys it, are it, fashionable hipsters or because ideologically there's like a purity that they can respect? Well, what, what is it?
4: Um, it? Part of it came during the, uh, when Ferguson started going down a couple of years ago and a lot of people on the left started suddenly getting into criminal justice reform. So they just started looking around saying, who else has been talking about this? Like, uh, over here, we've been talking about it for decades. Um, and so um, when they start creeping towards uh, where we have always been on uh, various policy issues, they like us to come and and uh, and, and give them the scary vision of how uh, the radical future looks like. So they're kind of doing that on pot now, or actually that was more like two years ago. Um, you know, it was California, Proposition 19, you know, it was only six years ago, and it and it lost. It was the first kind of like legalization thing. So right around then, people were like, okay, let's invite the libertarian to talk about these crazy ideas, like legalizing pot. And, of course, now that's going to happen in California uh, in November, and we've seen it happen in other states. So um, we scare them with visions of the future. uh, And then also sometimes they just use us because they don't want to talk to an actual Republican or an actual conservative. (laughs) But they want someone who's familiar a little bit with the right to try to explain a little bit about what's going on out there uh it's a combination of that but i think they find our our uh our views on civil liberty uh concerns to be kind of bracing and interesting
2: yeah uh, i mean then, so you're
3: like you're, are, you guys are on the right but you know you've got tattoos and you you're okay with a little weed smoking so it like freaks them out less I, I get it i just i wanted to hear it from the from the libertarian's mouth such as it is because i was know that i i don't know if you ever heard me say this word matt a libertarian is what a conservative in new york calls himself who wants to have friends <laughs> so.
4: uh, that's pretty funny uh, i you know i i There are plenty of libertarians who consider themselves on the right. I never have, for whatever it's worth, and part of it's because I always live in the
3: right. Oh, no, I mean for people like me. I don't mean like that that's what all libertarians are. (laughs) I mean that we we adopt the moniker when we're at a cocktail party, especially in one of the other boroughs, and don't want people to look at us funny. Conservatives say that. We're like, yeah.
4: That's totally true on college campuses as well. I mean— I argue with Jonah Goldberg about this stuff uh, all the time, although I think he's, he's, this election has scared him in my direction. But uh, he's always saying the libertarian is just a pose word for people on campus who don't want to be a, uh, associated with a conservative brand. Or they want to seem edgy and cool. Um, and there are entire organizations that are set up around that idea. Um, uh, it's for sure true. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, we're. We are useful weirdos in this uh, in this uh, political moment of ours, and uh, one of the great open questions, and libertarians right now are like tearing each other's eyes out over this question, are like, did uh, the uh, capital L Libertarian Party uh, take advantage of this weird election year well or terribly, and and what does it all mean going forward? And no two people have the same uh, two answers to that, which is uh, which is pretty interesting, I think.
3: We've talked very little about the election here, which I guess is a function of the fact that you think that it's more or less already over. Uh, so let me just ask you about WikiLeaks before we get to a before we have to go into a break here for a second. What, what what's well, first of all, where are you on WikiLeaks? Transparency organization, Russian intel front, both? What do you think?
4: Can't no reason why I can't be both. Uh, WikiLeaks. I've never. I, I I appreciate the concept more, much more than I like the people. Uh, And like what they do. I mean, I think that there's a pretty bright line between what Edward Snowden did and what Julian Assange has done. Edward Snowden, um, in my view, and you and I might disagree uh, to various degrees on this, um, but he was conscious of not going full WikiLeaks. He's, I don't want to burn sources out there. I want to have these uh vetted by journalistic organizations in ways that they are mindful uh, and careful about not leaving translators out high and dry like I think Wikileaks did with some of their uh stuff from 5 6 years ago so um, I I like in general radical transparency um I'm happy I think it's if I was You know, if if I was running the New York Times, I would not hesitate for a half a second about publishing, as soon as you can confirm them, these probably illegally, you know, uh, maybe, probably, uh, uh, Russian-facilitated emails from Hillary Clinton, because the point is we want to see what what they've got. Uh, I get more upset when they're releasing stuff of private citizens who are not not doing anything wrong uh, or not uh, involved with the the exercise of power. Um, And I think so far... The WikiLeaks has just kind of confirmed the basic sleazebaggery of uh, Hillary Clinton and the power politics that she's been about. I, it, it hasn't, I don't think, really altered anyone's concept of who she is um, uh, and how she does things. Uh, you know, some of it will anger Bernie Sanders supporters and other you know parts of the left that she was. Uh, uh, double dealing with and uh, and that kind of stuff. But as a broad conception, uh, yeah, that's kind of who she is. That's the point. She's an incredibly unlikable candidate who would be losing to just about any other Republican, um, with the possible exception of Ben Carson. But who the hell even knows? All
3: right. Our buddy Matt Welch. You can read more of his latest at Reason.com. He's the editor at large of Reason Magazine. He is also on Twitter at Matt Welch. And he's a libertarian, so you guys need to make some libertarian friends so that when people start to yell at you for being conservative, you're like, no, it's cool, I'm friends with Matt Welch, and he's a libertarian. This is like <laughs> what people like me do. So thanks, Matt, for giving us top cover. Appreciate
4: it. <laughs> any time. We're, we're here for you.
3: I appreciate that. All right, buddy, talk to you soon. Uh, 888-900-3393 on the phones. We'll be right back.
1: This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Um, you know, there are things that have come out in these WikiLeaks emails that we know, um, or rather that we thought we knew, and now we've gotten confirmation of it. Media is not paying much attention to this. It's all out, all in, top to bottom, get Clinton elected between now and Election Day, right? That's That's where this is. There's going to be no change in that whatsoever. That's, you can expect the drumbeat to just continue, and it's as loud as it can possibly be. So that WikiLeaks is getting in this game and and putting out information that's damaging to the Clinton campaign clearly shows that, uh, one, the media is much less interested in this than they were about, the say, the leaks from formerly Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, Private Manning, which just released thousands and thousands of pages of diplomatic and military uh, classified information onto the open internet. Uh, they thought that was many in the media thought that was some sort of heroic act and they were very excited about it. Um, meanwhile, you have on the other side of things here, uh, WikiLeaks not getting much attention at all because this stuff is confirming much of what we've all all thought for a long time about the Clintons and the Clinton machine, right? That's, so that's been a part of all of this. And this is one of the I just want to spend a couple of minutes with you on this. This is one of the things that's come up uh, every time there's a mass shooting on U.S. soil or, or any kind of a, a terrorist, an obvious terrorist attack. You can see based on social media and including people with very large platforms and substantial followings that they want it to be. And the, one of the more famous examples of this was Mayor Bloomberg when he was the mayor of New York saying that he figured that the Times Square bomber, uh, Syed Farouk, or, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm getting, Syed Farouk was the uh, San Bernardino shooter. Um, I'm forgetting the Times Square bomber's name. Faisal Shahzad, there we go. I worked that case, so I shouldn't forget that name. Okay. Uh, that it was an angry Tea Party person, and it turned out to be Faisal Shahzad from Pakistan. Okay. So, but he said that public. he didn't even, that wasn't a private thing. He said that publicly. It sounds like an angry, somebody angry about Obamacare or something like that. It was like a Tea Party person. And we know that the left would always prefer, they would prefer that the perpetrator of a mass casualty attack be a right-wing uh, Christian. Because then that ties in, that, then they can get so much more political juice out of it. And one of the things that's come out in the WikiLeaks emails is Podesta uh, writing back to somebody uh, on Hillary Clinton's team that it would be better if a guy named Syed Farouk was reporting that a guy named Christopher Hayes was the shooter. This is in response to Chris Hayes of MSNBC reporting that the shooter in San Bernardino was Syed Farouk. And spokeswoman Karen Finney wrote back, damn. They want, the, they, they want they're actually actively rooting for white american christians to be the perpetrators of attacks because even because at one level i think they're actually so deluded and so crazy that they really do believe that's where the real threat comes from whatever that means but also because they know that then they then they can turn into a gun control issue and every time for every one attack that involves a a, a christian of any denomination mean, a christian of any skin color but a christian american Uh, And it is more helpful to the left's narrative if it's a white Christian American. We'll hear about that for the next 10 years. So even if it's 50 to 1 Muslim jihadist terrorism to somebody purportedly Christian in one way or another and white conducting a terrorist attack, when we say, hey, there's a real problem from jihadism, they'll point to the even though the disparity will be 50 to 1, they'll point to the Christian attack and say, see, they do it, too so there 's nothing to there 's nothing to take from any of this it doesn 't matter it 's all the same, which of course is a huge lie, um, but they actively root they would rather fellow Americans be killing Americans in terrorist acts than a foreign ideology imported into America jihadism is responsible for a mass casualty attack because ultimately they get more political juice out of, as I said, but also there are a lot on the left who view right-wing Christianity as the greatest threat to this country.
1: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Team. We're joined now by Kirsten Haglund, our friend, who is the founder of the Kirsten Haglund Foundation. She's also a political commentator. She was Miss America 2008. She's on Twitter at Kirsten Haglund. Hey, there you are. What's up, Kirsten? How you doing?
2: Oh, hey, I'm good. How are you? Sorry, I was totally hearing you. No, it's all good. You out there? And... I know. I oh, just boy. just
3: it's live radio. This is the joys of live radio. You should you should I be with it. me when we have like. A loud, uh, profane street fight happening right outside my window, and an ambulances going by because then people get the real freedom hut. The real freedom hut sauce oh, yeah. is apparent, um, and you have to. I have to apologize. I lost my voice over the weekend, so I'm a little. Which for a radio host is not great, but whatever. So let's talk about the election, uh, Kirsten. We just had uh, Matt Welch on from uh, Reason. You know, my, one of my libertarian buddies, because you know you got to have some libertarian buddies to be cool. And, and yes. he, sa- he says he thinks this is, this is all over. Well, what, what say you?
5: Um, I would tend to agree. Uh, we haven't seen anyone in the history of American politics when we've been doing scientific polling come back from this much of a loss uh, this late in the game. So statistically uh, speaking, it doesn't look good for Donald Trump at all. Um, however, as many people have said and are saying, nothing in this election cycle has gone as planned or as expected or has followed the rules of political science. So obviously, you know, you see a lot of pundits and pollsters who have formerly made claims based on statistics and evidence who are throwing that all out of the window and making sure that they keep the reputations intact by saying who knows? <laughs> and we'll find out on election day. But I have to say, I think, I think it's from it's, everything we've seen. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating
3: to watch the media because the, there's there's obviously so much. I, I do believe that a lot of people in the media think that they have a responsibility to prevent that. The ethical thing to do as a journalist is to do everything they can to stop Trump from getting elected so that they've now become referees who think that the ethical thing is to throw the game for one team. But that's I think that's where they are. Uh, but as that's happening, one, one of the narratives you're seeing is not only is Trump going to lose, but he's already complaining about how when he loses, it will be unfair. Therefore, he's even crazier than you realize. Therefore, you got to make sure he doesn't win. You got to. Uh, here's Katie Turr, who's a reporter over at uh, NBC, essentially making this case. Uh, play it, Ty.
5: It's more than speculation. It's Donald Trump himself saying those words and tweeting them out. Governor Pence may say that the campaign is absolutely going to accept the outcome of, of the election, but that's a lot different than saying every day on Twitter that the election is rigged and saying it at campaign rallies, which is what Donald Trump is doing. Uh, and he's making it very clear that nothing, no outcome other than him winning is going to be acceptable to him.
3: Well, I think it's one thing, uh, Kirsten, to say that, The media or the election is rigged and that the media wants Trump to lose and is actively working against him. I think that's true. I think that's fair saying that there's problems at the polling places already that well seems to be perhaps pushing a little a little more than is fair in, in that direction. What do you think?
5: Yeah, it is a little bit frightening, and I think for Republicans or conservatives in general to make a big deal about this election being rigged, following the lead of Donald Trump, is um, really just kind of disingenuous because we we both know that the media has been left leaning since its inception. I mean, since you know the broadcast television, Um, you know. So in that case, I guess it's always been rigged in favor of the Democratic, um, you know, the Democratic member of the ticket. So I don't think that's the most legitimate criticism, but here's what he's doing. Um, this argument works for him in two ways. If he loses, um, then he's able to have lowered expectations already in October and said, hey, we knew we weren't going to win. This has been rigged all along. He did this in the primaries when he was ahead, actually, um, in order to kind of stem some of that feeling that he did something wrong, he's pointing the finger at someone else and laying the blame. Um, however, uh, you know, if he if he does win, which is probably not going to happen, then you're going to be able to see this kind of swell of, you know, ground supporters, uh, you know, really supporting him. Um, and if he doesn't win also, and then he has this huge group of people that are going to tune into Trump TV or whatever media outlet he forms afterward. You know, there's been a lot of rumblings about that. Um, but he has this, you know, groundswell of supportive of people that will, you know, tune in or Uh, will help bolster whatever business venture he has in his head to do after November.
3: What do you make of, as somebody who not just competed in in the most well-known pageant, but won it in Miss America, I know Trump is Miss USA, and he owns that. It's a different pageant, and and it has a different sort of reputation from media colleagues of mine who have done both, uh, or, you know, have done one or the other, and I've heard from both of them. Uh, were, do you find the, all these accusations that have been coming out, all these things that have said that have been said? Do you have an opinion on it? Do you feel like it's why are we only hearing about this now? What's what's your sense of the the sort of the, well, the
5: attacks yeah.
3: from all the women that have come out? Yeah.
5: Yeah. Well, you know the the people who have known Donald Trump for a, a long time or have been familiar with him and his businesses know that this is who he is. I mean, we, um, and I say we in the pageant world, have been familiar with Donald Trump for a really long time because he did operate Miss USA and you know we you know Miss America and Miss USA <laughs> go back and forth in a friendly rivalry, uh, of course. But so we've known that this is what he's like for a long time, and I know many amazing women who've competed in both systems and have reported these exact same kind of lewd and vulgar comments and treatment of women to me, which is why when he started to run for president this year, I was like, "Are you are you kidding?" <laughs> um, and yes i do believe that these criticisms are legitimate okay i am not a hillary clinton supporter and i am not you know she is someone of extreme questionable morality and it's just it's she's she's a disaster in and of herself so in no way am i throwing in my lot with hillary by criticizing donald trump um but here's the thing is if you care about real change in our culture. Change is not necessarily driven by politics. Actually, politics is usually quick to, you know, follow or, you know, to try to play catch up with where culture, um, cultural change really comes from, which is from families, which is, um, you know, from communities, it's from people on the ground, real people, right? And so if you care about the change in our country, you have to care about families and communities. And who are the role models in our society? How do they talk? How do they speak? Um, you know, that is who affects these families and communities. And what I am Terrified of is having a, this kind of behavior and this kind of talk that you've seen him from him normalized, um, seeing that kind of person as a role model for young people of a way to treat women, of a way for men to speak, uh, just for the ways to treat you know minority communities. Um, it's just it's not okay, and I'm fearful of that kind of behavior becoming normalized because political changes we don't often see the effects of for years, but the kind of role models that we have in our society we see those. Uh, we see that impact immediately in our children. Um, and so I think as conservatives, as people that really care about how we shape the culture and how it affects our families and our children, I think that's something that we really need to be concerned about. And that's why I've been pretty vocal about you know, my, my concern and, and just urging people to really think about is this the kind of um, language and this is, is this the kind of role model that we want for our children.
3: But you're still going to vote for Trump.
5: No, I'm not voting for Donald Trump.
3: Oh, really? Wow.
5: No,
3: I'm I wow. just, I can't
5: and you know, Buck, I can't because, I mean, you know me I, you know, I have a family yeah. that you know, supports women, um, you know, that struggle with eating disorders. I struggled, you know, this is a, the, and, and but it's not just eating disorders it's about, you know, how people it's about self-worth. It's about um, you know, kind of changing the culture to be one that's more compassionate, more supportive and more kind toward people. You know, that's a huge part of what I do and my identity. I can't go do the work that I do whether it's, you know, um, speaking or working with college. I can't do that work and say that I voted for a man who who speaks this way about women. I just I can't. Like if I had a personal mission, mission statement, that would be going against my personal mission. So statement. what's your, what's the <laughs> so what's
3: the uh, the preferred choice of of Ms. Hagland in this election then, if I may ask?
5: Yeah, well, I'm either going to not Vote at the top of the ticket or write in Evan McMullin. Um, I mean, I, I live in New York, Buck. We live in New York. So, yeah, no, it doesn't really matter. So I'm looking at the long game. And I do think that um, the GOP, you know, all the talk of it being broken and dying. I actually think there's a fabulous opportunity here to rebuild um, under fives in this country are majority minority, right? Um, over 40% of millennials already are minority. You know, we are going to have a huge change in this country. That just is, it's, it's, it's coming. It's going to happen. We can't stop it. So the GOP really needs to change. Um, and I think that this is an opportunity for them to do so to really create messaging that is more, um, you know, relatable to a wider swaths of the population um, because the white the white people in this country are becoming the minority, and you cannot win elections only appealing to one small segment of the country you just can't and so well, it's a pretty, I think it it's is a pretty big
3: segment of the country season. but yes <laughs> it
5: is it there is. are a lot of
3: it white is, people but still but yeah
5: oh of course, of course there are, but that's just not the reality um the for the demographic demographic future of this country and I think the GOP has a lot of things in line with Hispanic voters with some African-American voters um, with a lot of with a lot of Asian-American voters so I mean we have to get our message out there better and I think maybe it will be a time to regroup after November to be able to do that um, in a way that is more inclusive rather than so divisive
3: all right Kirsten, dropping, dropping bombs on today's show. <laughs> Kirsten Haglin is the founder of the uh, Kirsten Haglin Foundation. How do people learn more about it, Kirsten?
5: Yeah, they can go onto my website at kirstenhaglin.org.
3: Kirstenhaglund.org. There you go. And you can follow her on Twitter, and you guys should if you don't already. Kirsten, great to have you. Thank you so much for calling in. We really appreciate it. Oh, I think we lost her. I think she said thank you. She is unfailingly polite and, uh, and kind. So, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back, team.
1: Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: So you probably, well, maybe you've heard that Hillary Clinton gave some speeches to Goldman Sachs. Um, she gave three speeches to Goldman Sachs in 2013, for which she was paid six hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. Three speeches, six hundred and seventy-five k. Okay, uh, okay, everybody. So that's a lot. That's a lot of cash for some speeches and. Given Goldman's history with understanding the power of government connections and perhaps even keeping your enterprise alive in the midst of a financial crisis, right? Where did Hank Paulson work, by the way? Oh, that's right, Goldman Sachs. Where did he not work? Oh, that's right, Lehman Brothers. Which one of those still exists? Not Lehman Brothers. Uh, So 675. I know people say, oh, Bach, that's oversimplified. Well, sure, but it's also true. 675 uh, k for three speeches, and the speeches now have come out via. Uh, I think this is via WikiLeaks, right? I mean, I think so. Uh, I don't know. I'm assuming this. This came off a of zero hedge, which has moments of brilliance and moments of crazy, from what I see. But anyway, here's what we get from the Clinton speeches that she gave. Uh, one Dodd Frank is uh, useless political BS, and she knows it. Now, you know, they talk about Dodd-Frank and she'll say that she's so tough on Wall Street and they've reined in Wall Street and all this other crap. That's all nonsense. Dodd-Frank is knee jerk reaction. Oh, gosh, we have to do something. What are we going to do? I've got an idea. Let's pass this huge bill that we can talk about as though it's actually somehow going to change the way Wall Street operates and conducts its business. And it doesn't do that. Uh, She she says in one of these speeches and with political people, again, I would say the same thing. You know, there was a lot of complaining about Dodd-Frank, but there was also a need to do something because for political reasons, if you are an elected member of Congress and people or constituency were losing and shutting businesses and everybody in the press is saying it's all the fault of Wall Street, you can not sit idly by and do nothing. But what you do is really important. Um, So. She's just saying, you know, Dodd Frank we did Dodd Frank because of politics. Didn't really change anything. Just makes it actually harder for any sort of smaller financial entities to compete with the big ones. Burdensome regulations, burdensome costs. And has by no means will, will protect us from uh will protect us from another financial meltdown, right? She also says, and this is why, of course, she didn't release the speeches, as we know. We all, we all talk about Trump's tax returns. Why can't we know what she said to Goldman Sachs? It's not classified. Goldman Sachs people know. Why can't we know? She said at one of these speeches, quote, speaking about financial regulations, the people that know the industry better than anybody else, are the people who work in the industry. Um, she said banks are not doing what they need to do because they're scared of regulation they're scared of the other shoe dropping. So she's basically saying Wall Street should regulate itself. And regulations are stopping banks from doing what they need to do because they're scared. Have you ever heard anything like that from her in her entire campaign, either during the primary or now? You see, this is what's one of the, what what's I find so bothersome about Hillary Clinton is, well, there's many, many things, of course. But she assumes that we're all just a bunch of chumps. We're either on her team or we're chumps. Um, or we're not powerful enough to stop her. But anybody who, anybody who thinks that Hillary Clinton is going to hold Wall Street accountable uh, just it, it has, poor, has, has poor powers of deduction, I guess we could say, is not a skilled analyst. Hillary's in the pocket of Wall Street, at least the very powerful on Wall Street, just like she's in the pocket of anybody who's very powerful and wealthy. And she says one thing to them and one thing to the rest of us. Uh, of course astonishing as we see this play out is that she won't lose much support over this she'll still keep pretending to be a friend of Main Street when she's really a stooge of Wall
1: Street The Buck Sexton Show Only on the Blaze Radio Network spreading freedom across the nation this is Three, two, one. the buck sexton show team welcome back to the freedom hunt
3: we're very pleased to be joined by our friend rebecca heinrich she is a fellow at the hudson institute specializing in nuclear deterrence it's a lady that knows something about intercontinental ballistic missiles what's up rebecca <laughs>
2: hi buck
3: so uh, let's. Speaking of missiles, we got a whole bunch to talk about Yemen. They're firing missiles. Rebels are firing missiles. Houthis at a US a uh, US destroyer. We've responded. What's going on there?
2: So the United States sent a destroyer over there um, to the Red Sea, supposedly uninvolved in what's happening over in Yemen. The Houthi rebels are backed by the Iranians, and there's a Saudi led coalition that's trying to re install the Sunni government there. And so there's that sectarian um, battle going on between basically Iran and Saudi Arabia. But the United States is actually there supporting the Saudi-led coalition. So it's a proxy war between the United States and the Iranians as well, through the Houthis and the Saudi-led coalition. So we sent a ship there, and the Houthi rebels uh, had the audacity to shoot at an American ship. Um, thankfully, it looks like uh, we, we intercepted at least one of them with what's called an SM-2 missile which if confirmed, that would be the first time that interceptor has actually been battle-tested. So that'll be a a really impressive uh, feat um, of technology if that didn't, in fact, happen. Um, But but thankfully, none of the missiles, regardless, actually hit the ship, so our sailors were okay. Um, But then, you know, the Obama administration kind of sat on their hands for a while. They wanted to sort of figure out who shot at us and that that sort of thing, Um, even though we knew uh, very well that it was the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So eventually, we did go ahead and take out uh, some of their uh, radar facilities in Yemen. Um, but, you know, it's going to continue to heat up. And so far, you know, Iran just continues to act with impunity.
3: Now, the Houthis are an Iranian proxy in Yemen. Uh, the Houthis are fighting for control of, of, of the Yemeni government. Uh, they mm-hmm. are on the opposite side from the Saudis on this deal. And yet the U.S., which has its new, are, are the Obama administration's new buddies, the Iranians, don't seem like they're exerting any pressure on the Houthis to, oh, I don't know, not fire missiles at U.S. ships. First of all, what do the Houthis think they can accomplish by firing at a U.S.-guided missile destroyer? Well, what's what's the purpose of that? Is it just, just cause they can? Well, um,
2: because they can? Well, because they can and because they're really, I mean, they've gotten some radar taken out because of it, but but that's it. You know, the, the Obama administration's really trying to get out of office here, um, having established the Iran deal and now having, uh, you know, improved relations between the United States and Iran. So it's trying to sneak out of here without the American people recognizing that we're once again in another conflict in the Middle East. Um, but, but you know, the, the, the Houthis are, are being audacious here, and why not? If, if there's really not going to be some greater consequences than what's already happening. And the Iranians, not only are they not having the Houthis stop, but remember, they're the ones that are sending them the missiles that are doing this. I mean, the Houthis are a proxy. Um, um, militia group um, funded by the Iranians. So it's Hezbollah. Hezbollah uses the same weapons that the Houthis are using now. So make no mistake, this is Iran. And the great irony here of course is that uh, the reason that the United States is supporting the Saudis there is to counter the increased missiles and influence that the Iranians have in the region because of the Iran deal. So this whole thing is really um, in part a great responsibility of the Obama administration.
3: Now, there's another area, and this is an area of expertise uh, for Rebecca Everyone she's written about it at Hudson.org. You write, North Korea is a crisis for our next president. North Korea is not getting a lot of attention right now. Why is it a crisis that will confront our next president?
2: Well, North Korea has been steadily um, improving its nuclear missiles, its nuclear capability as well as its missiles. And missiles, whenever you think about missiles, those are the delivery systems for nuclear weapons. And so... Um, this is another reason that, you know, and this this actually is related to Iran, too, because Iran cooperates with North Korea on their missile program. So it's all sort of tied together. So the more money you pump into Iran um, because of sanctions relief, you can count on just a missile improvement, missile improvements across the globe, and, including missile proliferation. So um, this is one of the reasons I oppose the Iran deal so much is because we never require the Iranians to stop what they're doing with missile development. And so we're essentially funding it. Um, so, again we're partly to blame here, but the North Koreans are increasing their missile capabilities, increasing their nuclear capabilities. Um, and it's only improved over time. They're, they're not only increasing just the the range or the ability to hit the United States with one of these things. Um, they can already span all of South Korea. They can hit us forces in Japan. Um, but they're also increasing their ability to evade, uh, to sort uh, missile defenses, to sneak around and surprise us with submarine launch missiles, et cetera. So, um, This is really getting worse. It's culminating um, and the next administration, whoever it is, whoever's in there is really going to have to finally deal with this. And that either means just accepting a a nuclear North Korea that can hit us, which I advise against that, um, or it's pressuring China, finding some um, wise way to get China to, to actually pressure and stop the North Koreans. Um, and also building military capabilities with our Asian allies to to uh, you know build a strong alliance to try to get to squeeze North Korea to, to protect us.
3: I mean the alternative, um, so I suppose, and I think this actually came up in some of the leaked emails uh, between Podesta and, and the Hillary cronies, or maybe it was one of the Hillary emails itself. Was that oh no? I think it was actually in a Hillary speech she gave to Goldman Sachs in those transcripts, which I I don't know if those have been confirmed or denied yet by the Clinton campaign. But that one option for dealing with North Korea was to just ring the area with missile defense. Of course, that begins to rankle the Chinese, and right. so by, by putting in place what would be necessary to prevent a first strike by North Korean nuclear missiles, you upset the Chinese and you add problems into your. You know, there's there's no easy answer. Seems to be what the uh, what, what the outcome of all of this is. There's
2: no there's no easy answer, and what I write in my piece to, which originally ran in real clear defense, is is that no matter what we do here, it's going to be very tumultuous over the next couple of years. North Korea has improved its capability to to the extent that they really can coerce the United States with what we do in the region by threatening us with missiles. So it's a problem. Um, And the Chinese are going to do exactly what Russia did with the United States, which is oppose increased American presence in the region, um, including and especially with missile defense capabilities. Um, but I argue that, that that is actually what we need. Now, a lot of people um, sent me that that piece that you referenced showing me that, you know, look, Hillary Clinton will in fact be a great missile defense president. She said that we do need to put a, you know, ring around China with missile defense capabilities. My, my initial response is, I'm glad to hear her say that, but while she was Secretary of State, she certainly didn't promote that or have the ability to influence the administration to do that. So um, you know, I'm very skeptical of her commitment to that. Um, she might be telling some, some some folks in a particular speech that, or to, to donors, etc. But there's no evidence that she actually supports that in real life. So we'll see. Um, but that you mean Hillary says some do.
3: things to some people that she changes when she's talking to other people. Say it ain't so. Isn't it
2: Rebecca? shocking? Yeah. So um so we'll see. You know, I'm, I'm skeptical. She didn't do that. Um, and so we'll see. Now, Donald Trump actually in a speech that he gave talked about missile defense as well and said that we actually need to deploy increased regional missile defenses to Asia. Um, that would be a good thing too. You know, he's running on a, he's running a campaign that sort of, you know, he doesn't want increased conflict. He doesn't want to be engaged in more wars. And so one of the, you know, one of the things we can do to prevent that is to increase our deterrence. And that would be increasing military defenses in the region. So, Um, Either way, if both candidates are saying that, that makes me happy. Let's
3: talk a little bit about Russia and its nukes and its missiles. Um, You've got Foreign Policy writing a piece just in the last couple of days here uh, saying, or actually yesterday, that Russia's President Vladimir Putin's nuclear saber-rattling and military brinksmanship have upended the rules that long govern relations between Moscow and Washington. Um, They're essentially saying that the old, sort of the old way of doing business, especially when it came to the nuclear arsenal, is getting kind of, thrown out and now military conventional military stuff and nuclear uh nuclear arsenal are being treated or at least putin treats them as separate issues and uses them to sort of get away with more right he just sort of what's going on, on the one hand what's going on, on the other hand he treats them like they're not they're not in somehow uh linked
2: right yeah russia um you know russia has a lot of people in the military right now um worried uh, and, I, you know, every time uh, Secretary Clinton sort of takes credit for the New START treaty that she, was, that she navigated when she was Secretary of State, it makes me squirm because the New START treaty was supposed to actually decrease the number of nuclear weapons in the Russian arsenal, but right now the, new, the, the Russians are actually above New START treaty limits by 200 deployed nuclear warheads. Now, they don't have to get those back down for another about year and a half or so, but They've only increased the number of nuclear weapons since that treaty was signed, um, and I don't know how they're going to get them back down in time uh, by the deadline. So, um, the Russians are emphasizing their nuclear capabilities. They are increasing their nuclear saber saber rattling through just rhetoric. They're they're flying nuclear capable airplanes into the airspace of NATO allies, etc. cetera. So, um, you know, we are seeing since since President Obama. Took office um, in, in basically every region of the world. U.S. power and influence waning, and um, you know, the, and others stepping in, and that's 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 Russia, that's that's North Korea, that's that's Iran, that's China, um, and and so you know, I I used to be, you know I used to say it used to be enough for the American president to say, Russia, don't sell the S three hundred missiles to Iran, and they wouldn't because they knew there would be consequences if they did. But now we've seen that Russia is, in fact, doing that. And, you know, it's just that's a lack of resolve. It's not even so much a military uh, capabilities mismatch. It's just a lack of belief that the United States government is actually going to follow through with what it's committed to. Um, You know, I get questions.
3: Go ahead, Rebecca. I didn't mean to cut you off. You were saying?
2: No, you're right. So I was going to say it's just it's a matter of U.S. credibility. And that's a hard thing to earn back. But that's what we need.
3: I am asked questions these days, and usually in either back channel or people will sort of reach out to me directly in email or Facebook, uh, and they'll say, "You know, what's really the worst? People are talking. People are getting pretty spun up about Russia right now. What's a realistic worst case scenario over the next few months with Russia? I mean, I don't see us having, you know, U.S. tanks and planes firing at U.S. at Russian tanks and planes anytime soon." Although in Syria, if we had a no-fly zone, things could get pretty, pretty hairy pretty quickly. Pretty, uh, the, the tensions would obviously rise very quickly. But what's with regard to these sort of Russian provocations, is it all just for show, or could you see this going bad in, in a way? Like, What is, what is a realistic worst-case scenario for the way Russia has been acting recently?
2: Well, Russia has identified NATO as its uh, primary enemy. Um, and, of course, the United States is a member of NATO that um, we have treaty obligations with NATO. Article 5 of the treaty requires us to respond if one of our NATO allies is attacked. And um, and, and, and Russia has set out to undo that alliance. So I, I don't think it's mere, um, you know, show. I don't think it's just saber rattling I think the Russians are testing U.S. resolve, seeing how much they can get away with. They're trying to expand their own borders. They're trying to expand their own influence and undermine the United States' influence in Europe. Um, so, you know, worst case scenario, we could see the Russians, um, you know, do more in Ukraine. Um, they could, you know, I know that the Poles, a great ally of the United States, is very concerned um, about their own security when it comes to Russia. So well, I think the worst case scenario at this point is to just see Russia make a move again against a NATO ally, against the NATO alliance. And that puts the United States in a really serious predicament about, um, you know, what do we do? Article 5 of the, of the treaty requires us to respond as though we were attacked. And that, and that does put us at war with Russia. Um, so, you know, do you the think way, they could try obviously- to undermine
3: Article 5 without actually a, a full scale military intervention? I've started to see some sort of red cell analysis popping up here and there of, well, maybe they maybe they sort of they do what they've done in Ukraine. They do what they've done elsewhere. They fake some kind of uh uh, you know, from within uh, uprising, maybe Russians in Latvia, for example, and then they claim to be peacekeepers, and they 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 have these sort of sly and slimy ways of inserting themselves into foreign countries.
2: That's what they do. That's what they do. But what they're doing is they really aren't poking at the seams of the alliance, and and we all know what they're doing. I mean, that if you're asking me, and if I were actually advising, at, you know, an administration, I would say, hey, that counts. That counts. That counts as. As, um, you know, under, undermining and attacking a NATO ally. Um, but, but because there's just this strong aversion to get involved in um, this weakness that's being projected and this reluctance, indecisiveness being projected by this administration, that's what the Russians are taking advantage of. And so they're poking in these soft spots and doing exactly um, the sorts of things that you just um, described. Uh, and, and again, so much of this, you know, a lot of people think that to to follow through on our commitments to these treaties, or to re- you know to actually follow through on red lines that we draw in Syria, to do so would actually be to escalate situations. But that's not true. What we're seeing is uh, you know other countries are escalating because the United States is doing nothing. Um, and so sometimes you do have to demonstrate a show of force. You do have to demonstrate that you're serious and have some resolve in order to de-escalate the situation and actually promote peace and stability.
3: Rebecca Heinrichs is a fellow at the Hudson Institute. She specializes in nuclear deterrence. Give her a follow on Twitter. And also, she has a piece up on real clear defense. Uh, and you could learn more about what she does at Hudson.org. Rebecca, great to have you. Thank you for calling in. Thanks so much. Uh, phone lines are open, team, if you want to chat a little bit. Uh, my voice could certainly use a rest. 888 900 3393. I feel like I should be announcing the latest. Uh, the latest jazzy tunes. Hey, what's going on? Why don't you step into a warm bath of my jazz? That kind of worked, right, Ty? What do you think? No, a little bit. That's what uh, that's what Ron Swanson says before he takes the stage as Duke Silver. So, I think I'm going to be Ron Swanson for Halloween. By the way, if I go to a Halloween party, which I probably will end up getting getting uh, pulled to one at some point, I feel like Halloween that uh, the uh, Halloween. Where adults dress up is a more relative is a newer thing. Like when I was a kid, my parents never dressed up for Halloween, but now everybody dresses up for Halloween. Am I crazy, or is that th- am I right? Right? Like now everybody gets in on that game, whereas before I feel like it was just for the kids. So, yeah, I think I'd make a good Ron Swanson. I need to grow my hair out though, and I need to really work on the mustache. I'm gonna have to get a fake one. There's no way I can grow that walrus like mustache. That G.K. Chesterton, uh, Chesterton style mustache. That I, well, I mean, I've got two weeks, but dude, me, me with a must, two weeks of, of buckstache looks like uh, again a kid who's trying to buy beer at the at the local bodega and you know doesn't have ID, so <laughs> trying to look old. Uh, gotta
4: go to a break. Be right back.
1: You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio
3: Network. Phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We're going to talk a little bit about Hillary now and also going into the next break, because, you know, Hillary. um, And (laughs) I I don't want to upset anybody, but I think we might be talking about Hillary a lot for the next four years or so. Just saying. Uh, But it ain't over until the... Girthful person of nondescript gender, because who knows how he or she self-identifies, sings. Exactly. Uh Daily Caller, <laughs> Daily Caller's got something here. Hat tip Blake Neff of the Daily Caller. That in the recently released uh, FBI documents, part of the this is part of the FOIA. This is not WikiLeaks stuff. It talks about how senior diplomatic security agents, senior members of DS, which is diplomatic security who are usually, I mean, if you're part of DS protecting the Secretary of State, who's the head of you know, the, the State Department, and DS agents work for the State Department, that's the best assignment you can get, right? Well, not if you're talking about Secretary of State Hillary Clinton over the course of her tenure as Secretary of State. It was harder and harder to find senior agents who wanted the job. Why do you think that was, everybody? Anybody want to take a guess? Why Why would it be difficult to find senior seasoned officers to do security for Hillary Clinton to be on her detail. Oh, that's right. Because she's terrible. Because she's a nasty, uh, inconsiderate, thoughtless, vain, self-involved harpy. Yeah, that's right. that's what they say. More or less. I mean, I'm I'm adding a little bit of a little more colorful language there, but she's not a nice person. Um, You could say, Buck, who cares? Well... You know, it's uh, this election's turned into a big mudslinging fight, and we're about to elect the most corrupt, nasty, uh, in many ways morally irredeemable politician of the of the of the last I don't know fifty years as the next president of the United States. If the polls are right, uh, I also want to talk about some updates on the Clinton email stuff, and we got a, we got a lot more. Team
1: we got so much more.
3: I can't believe the show is closing in thirty minutes. Don't go anywhere.
1: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show, on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Well, oh, team, I I know that we get more and more information about the Hillary email situation, and and I understand that email fatigue has long since set in. But I have to say, this is among the more the more egregious moments in this whole. Uh, well, I don't know how can you even line them up? There's so many. Senior State Department official has repeatedly pressed the FBI to change the classification of emails stored on Hillary Clinton's private server, according to FBI interview summaries set to be released in the coming days. This is from the Weekly Standard. So this guy, uh, what's his name? Patrick Kennedy, I think is his name, something like that. Something Kennedy. He was involved in discussions with the FBI about what level of classification the documents on Hillary's server should be. You would think that if this was not an issue, why would they care, right? If, If it was a... Secure enough server and no national security problems here. Why is he lobbying for the classification designation to be lowered or to be completely changed such that it would be removed from public view? There are 34 of these. We'll get into these details. There are 34 summaries known as FBI 302s that are coming out because of a FOIA request. Um, and pressure from the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. So the FBI records show that a colleague pressured uh, uh, him into declassifying an email in exchange for a quid pro quo. Quote, in exchange for making the email unclassified, state would reciprocate by allowing the FBI to place more agents in countries where they are presently forbidden. Now, this request was denied, but they tried. So assuming this is all true, believing this reporting from the weekly standard, to believe that all this is accurate, this is what you would have to come away with. That one branch, one executive branch government agency was trying to bribe officials from another government branch agency to help cover up, dispose of, deny, hide impropriety in the first agency, in this case, the State Department. You got a senior State Department official telling a bunch of FBI people designated with the authority to either classify you know, up or down some of the documents on Hillary's email server. And the State Department guy allegedly, according to this report of the Weekly Standard, is saying, look, you guys hook us up on this and we'll, we'll send more of your FBI guys overseas. Now some of you may be saying, Well Buck, why is that such a why is that such an inducement? What would that really do? Ooh, let me tell you. Important side note, and this is for any of you thinking about government service who don't already work in government service. If you work for a government agency that can put people overseas, let's say you make you know, you're a federal <clears throat> excuse me guys. Let's say you make eighty grand. I think the federal average is like eighty five or ninety. Yeah. It's pretty good, right? I was definitely not making that when I started at the CIA. But anyway, uh, let's say you make the federal average, and you you know you live in the D.C. area. It's a nice, comfortable for D.C. Eighty grand is middle class, just so you know. I mean, that's D.C. is is there's a lot of concentrated wealth there, so everything's expensive, really expensive. Okay, let's say you make eighty grand, you live overseas. You're overseas on assignment for any government, any federal government agency. You know, FBI, State Department. I mean, it, they're they're regulations vary more or less. But there's some continuity across the federal government and this is budgetary stuff, so it is public. You're not paying for your housing. You're probably not paying for your food, depends where you are. you got a lot of expenses picked up. Now all of a sudden you're somebody who's living overseas and if you stay for six months, 12 months, whatever the case may be, your salary is just going into a bank account. When you think about how dramatically that changes your financial situation. Think about where, where your life right now, and if you got sent somewhere really cool overseas, we got to do your current job, whatever it is, and you paid for nothing and your salary just went into a bank account. This is how federal government employees actually end up doing pretty well. If you're willing to go overseas for a couple of years, if you're like a State Department foreign service officer, your money just goes into, you come back and, you know, maybe you got a hundred grand after taxes in the bank, maybe more. If you're in a dangerous place or a place where they do hazard pay, etc., real makes some real money. So that's important context for why a State Department person telling an FBI person, hey, hook us up on this and we'll give you some more overseas slots is really – that's how they reward – that's one of the biggest rewards they can give to sort of senior officers in in different government agencies. And look, some of these overseas spots are real cushy. All right? You know, you get – everything is taken care of. I mean, I wish I could go into more detail. But see, this is when you start to go into these details and they start to get mad at you and say, oh, you're not going to tell people that. And it's like, right – not because it is sensitive, sensitive, like it's a national security issue, but they just don't, you know, these agencies don't like people that really know what goes on and they don't want people to be embarrassed. And the moment you start to talk too much about how federal employees get their nests feathered, uh, all of a sudden the eye of Sauron is cast upon you and you're the bad guy. You know, they'll find some way to make an example of you. Very unfortunate, but this is a commonplace thing whenever you're talking about federal agencies. Okay. So that's why. This this uh, offer matters. Now, he wasn't taken up on the offer, so it's not like this changed the whole course of the investigation. But it is yet again another window into the lengths that the Clinton team uh, was willing to go in order to try to prevent the public disclosure of some of this Clinton information is bottom line. There's no way around it. This is what they are all about. The Clintons will bribe, they will threaten, they will cajole, they will flatter, they will do whatever is necessary to get what they want. And the cronies are much the same. They go out there, sort of like on on orders from the Mafia Don, knowing that if they get jammed up, well, they've got a powerful uh, patron to pull their feet out of the fire. And so they'll make very similar deals, threats, threats, offers you name it and there was a lot of this happening um and the fact that kennedy spent time with various fbi officials this is also coming out and this is because of FOIA requests discussing the level of classification of the different things in hillary's emails shows you two things one they were much more included uh, hillary's surrogates were much more included in this investigation from day one than they ever should have been allowed to be that's for starters and two they recognized that this was really bad if it wasn't really bad, why go through all the trouble? If there weren't any real concerns here about what this would do to Hillary's reputation and the possibility even – I don't think there was ever a possibility of criminal charges ever, 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 ever. It wasn't going to happen. Um, but you see – and by the way, you know, you've got some uh, former general, according to Fox News, charged in a, into a, a probe about classified information going to a guy writing a book. You think the Hillary defense will work for him? Nope. He's just a former general, spent his whole career in the military. Hillary Clinton's important to the Democratic Party. So as I've already told you this, you you don't even get the benefit of the rules. You know, the, the rules change, or at least there's the benefit of the doubt will now be a more broadly shared concept when it comes to information protection or classified. Not true at all. There are rules for Hillary. There are rules for everybody else. And uh, U.S. attorney's offices across the country are still going to crush people, ruin lives, ruin careers based on much less egregious behavior than what Hillary Clinton did. And we're all supposed to just stomach it and and accept it. You know, this is one of the things about this election that's made me um, maybe pretty depressed about the whole thing, to be honest with you. Um, I don't respect this government anymore. I I don't respect prosecutors' offices. And when I say respect, yeah, I'll listen to them because I have no choice because they have force. Right I'll obey the laws because well one, most you know most of our laws are moral, not all of them, most of them are moral, but um I don't think they're fair. I don't think that you can trust that the major uh the major u s attorneys' offices in this country aren't partisan and politicized at all. Uh, I don't think that the system has shown itself to be in any way devoted to the constitution and rule of law over power politics of the moment. I think quite the opposite and i have lost a lot of i've lost a tremendous amount of respect for certainly the executive level of the fbi and the department of justice i don't believe the department of i think the department of justice has now become kind of a uh, a joke actually i think the department of justice is now a punchline it is not justice that they dispense it's it's politics under the guise under the thin easily cracked veneer of justice when it comes to issues that are again i'm not talking about you know I'm I'm happy the FBI is still tracking down kidnappers and, you know, drug kingpins and all that. They're still doing that, and that's great. I'm talking about on issues of political corruption, national security investigations. National security is very politicized under this administration. And, you know, that Hillary, isn't it, it, well, no, it's not ironic, really, because now I sound like Alanis Morissette when she names a bunch of things that aren't ironic. They're actually just unlucky in her song. How was she ever famous, by the way? Ty, if you come up with an answer for that, let me know. Makes no sense. Um, well, I guess if you're an angsty, if you're an angsty female teenager in the '90s, I mean, I was in, I was. Uh, no, actually, I thought I was pretty cool, and, I, and as a teenager, I didn't really have those problems. Uh, what was I talking about? Lennis Moore said, ironic. Oh yeah, that an administration that's prosecuted more people under the Espionage Act than every other every other presidency before it combined. Think about that for a moment. There's been a lot of presidents. Every one of them combined, Obama has prosecuted more, his DOJ has prosecuted more people for release of classified, handling of classified, misuse of classified, whatever, you name it. And now our next commander in chief, according to the polls, maybe not true, maybe Trump wins, I know, don't get mad at me, I'm just saying. This is for dramatic effect now, everybody. Is somebody who just didn't think the rules applied to her. More stuff that came out, by the way, in the FOIA request about how she thinks that a uh, in a skiff where you can keep classified information, she would bring in her unclassified blackberries, and just the rules didn't apply to her because the rules don't apply to her. That's what's so annoying. It's not like, you know, well, we're going to teach her a thing or two. No, she's right. The rules don't apply to her. They should, but they don't. And, you know, I, I see this this general. I mean, this general that's getting charged, by the way, is going to get charged for false statements. He probably didn't even say, I mean, I'm guessing, I don't know what he said, but... And they don't talk about it specifically. Probably said stuff that was already in the public domain in one way or another and just affirmed it. But administration didn't like it. Want to make an example of somebody. And they're not going to get them on disclosing classified. They're going to get them on lying about disclosing classified. This is how they get you. This is the Scooter Libby option, by the way. Just drag somebody into a long, annoying FBI investigation. Get them to lie about anything. And then charge them with that. And that's five years federal prison. Then they take a plea deal because they don't want five years. Maybe they take a year in prison. Maybe, maybe. They get the Petraeus treatment. They don't go to jail at all. They're really connected. But think about that. Now think about the FBI investigation of Hillary and her cronies handing out immunity like candy. Well, that takes a lot of the heat off, doesn't it? Would you rather go into an FBI investigation with immunity or subject to the possibility that even if you've done nothing criminally wrong, you may say something because you're scared? That's not true. You may lie. Even though you've done nothing criminally wrong, this happens. And now, all of a sudden, that's the charge, just the lying. Sort of like, you can do nothing criminally wrong, but if you destroy evidence, like, I don't know, email under subpoena, you can be charged for that, too. The Clintons are not are not content merely to corrupt those who are around them. They actually want to go to the very core of the system and corrupt that itself and they've managed to do it they've managed to do it yeah and the same way that i guess you got to respect the devil created his own kingdom right <laughs> the clintons have created theirs we'll be right back
1: the buck sexton show discover more at the blaze.com slash radio the blaze radio network To the Buck Sexton Show on, on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Let's take Keith in Anchorage. What's up, Keith?
4: Hey, Buck. Uh, you just hit on exactly what I've been thinking about for a while now, and that's the fact of: let's say Hillary gets elected. Why should anyone care about the rule of law anymore? Um, you know. All these laws that they keep on producing, I mean, why should anybody follow them when they're not, they're not following them, you know, themselves?
3: Yeah, I, I don't, I, I feel increasingly like the, when we're looking at, especially at federal law, you're talking about a situation where a lot of Americans comply only out of fear, not out of respect.
2: Yeah, yeah, I yeah, think that's, that's, I think that's right. where we are. I mean,
3: I, I certainly feel that way. I've, I've always felt that way about the tax code. I don't comply with the tax code because I think it's fair or it's right, or I comply because I don't want to go to prison. So that's yeah, it. Yeah, you
4: don't You don't want to get taxed by the IRS. But,
3: <laughs> exactly. And and I, you know, I, I. but that means that I have a deep-seated animosity towards both the IRS and the federal government. And I used to work yeah, for the federal well, government, so I know that's weird, but it's true.
4: Yeah, well, and it's even changed now to the point where no, no longer the fear now there's going to be well um you know what's you know what they tell us to do and you know that's people just aren't going to go i don't think people are going to go with it anymore you know people are going to stand up and start saying hey you guys won't follow your own laws why should we follow the law yeah. we'll, we'll
3: see you need a lot of up. you need a lot of people to to a lot of people to break the law in unison in order for the law to sort of be overridden we should probably talk about uh uh nullification at another point it's very interesting topic i it's it's starts to sort of get into more of an ethics and morality discussion than a law discussion very quickly but uh hey keith uh from from alaska my man always good to talk to you shields hi bro we're at the end of the show i appreciate you calling um all right so please download today's show by the way even if you're listening live uh maybe you missed a part of it or maybe you just want to hear some of this back or even better Let's say you have a friend who's really annoyed about this election but just wants to know what's going on in the world and wants a new radio host to listen to or a new podcast to hear. You should be like, oh, there's this guy, Buck Sexton. He does weird voices and is, like, really nice most of the time. You should check him out and stuff. That's a pitch you could use. Until tomorrow, everybody.
1: Shields high. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.